Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features Abdi Noor Iftin at Augsburg University. Somali expat and debut author Abdi Noor Iftin is the pen behind one of the most anticipated and most timely nonfiction releases of 2018. Ifton's long and harrowing journey to America as part of the U.S. government's embattled diversity visa program came to the attention of audiences around the world through a viral BBC radio miniseries. Ifton's larger-than-life immigration story begins in war-torn Mogadishu, where he risked his life chronicling the rise of Islamic extremism in Somalia as an underground NPR correspondent. He narrowly escaped to a refugee camp in Kenya, where against long odds, he received an invitation from the U.S. Embassy to interview for a visa in 2014. Chart-topping radio show and podcast, This American Life, packaged Ifton's nightly interviews with BBC journalist Leo Hornack into a popular episode in 2015, Abdi and the Golden Ticket. He now lives in Portland, Maine, where he works as an English interpreter for other Somali immigrants and recently collected his stories into a book. Call Me American debuted in June. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, how's everybody doing today? Good. Good? Yeah, we're in Minnesota. Actually, it's my first time. Well, actually, second time. Uh, but the first time was so brief, so I haven't really explored a lot. Um, but today, I, uh, I will be around until Thursday. And I can't wait to see a lot of it. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from my book, but, and then I will try to dive, dive, dive in um, to the book. There was a lot of jostling, and the malicious fired shots into the air to control the crowd. Finally, the boat was ready to leave. The passengers hidden under a heavy tarp they were off to Yemen. I wanted to be on that boat with my friends. I didn't care how dangerous it was. I did not want to go back to Mogadishu. I wedged into the line for the next boat. When it was my turn to pay, I handed the smuggler my 40 American dollars. Where is the 40? He shouted. The boat is $80. I started telling him I didn't have the rest but he didn't want to hear my story. He threw the cash back in my face and said, I'm sorry to say this, fuck you, and moved on to the next person. In a few minutes, the boat was off, me is still on the pier, miserable beyond belief. Evening was, se was settling in Bosaso, and the crowd waiting to get on boats grew larger. I needed 40 more dollars. I did not know what to do, so I walked back 
into town to see if there was any jobs available. I found nothing. There was no big market like Bakara where you could find odd jobs as a tout or porter. And I knew that the more time I spent in Bosaso, the less money I would have because sooner or later I would need to eat. I skipped dinner, but I had to get breakfast. Locals figured the migrants came with a lot of money, so they were gouging prices on everything. Bread and tea that would have cost 20 cents in Mogadishu were a dollar. That night, I lay on the beach next to a crowd of migrants waiting for the sun to, ri to rise, a few hundred feet from the pier. In the morning, I went back to the pier and saw a familiar face. It was Abdullahi Madowi, a man from my neighborhood in Mogadishu. His wife and two kids were with him, all trying to get to Yemen. When he saw me, he ran over. We chatted a bit. I told him I had financial issues, but that I too was hoping to get to Yemen. He wished me good luck. I watched, I watched as he and his family boarded a boat and slowly disappeared over the horizon. By afternoon, we heard that Abbas and Ahmed's boat had made it to Yemen safely. I was happy for them, but all that I could think about was my own sad situation. I paced up and down the beach for hours. Mostly, I didn't want to admit to myself the obvious. I would be going back to Mogadishu. Then came terrible news. Abdullahi Madou's boat had capsized a few hours off the Somali coast. More than 70 people drowned. Abdullahi and his family did not return. Had I been on their boat, I probably would have died with them. Had I been on Abbas and Ahmed's boat, I would have lived. As I, um, as I trudged back to the bus debat, I felt my whole life was like that. Every day that I could remember was a matter of life and death. So that was a story about uh, one, of the, one of the many ways that you can uh, try to escape from Somalia to the outside world. Um, so growing up in Mogadishu, uh, I have spared a uh, couple chapters describing what childhood was like uh, in Mogadishu at the age of six, where uh, civil war starts and everything falls, falls apart. Just like a building that collapses to the floor. It was unbelievable. I talk about uh, the good life that we had um, before the war started, 89, 88, you know, when the only thing that could, that could make me cry was when the cat eats the bird that was in the tree. That could make me cry. You know, or when my brother snatched some snacks from my hand. That could make me cry. Or when my dad comes home on Fridays from his basketball uh, practice, and he, he comes home and says he's not going to take me to the snack bar. That could make me cry and make me feel angry and make me feel sad. But what happened one day in early 1991, when the Civil War started, was, was just something that I was struggling, you know, to find a way to cry about that. It was the beginning of losing everything that we had. Uh, jewelry, food, money, house, everything, you know, falls apart. Uh, we would never, ever be able to get back to our house. And this has not only happened to my family, it happened to the entire Somali people, wherever they are. Because the war started in Mogadishu and it spread quickly into every corner of the country. So what my mother was doing at the time 
was that she had been trying to use her nomadic skills to save our lives, to save me, my brother, and my sister. So what, what is she doing? We go into her uh, expert area, uh, into this flatland um, where she used to graze to uh, herd her, her goats and cows and, and, and other animals. Um, and then she was trying to keep us there, away from the gunshots, but the gunshots arrived into the remotest areas of Somalia, and then we had no other option but to come back to Mogadishu. But this time, the city had a different name. It was no longer actually basically Mogadishu. It was, to the eyes of the Somalis, it was the, woman, uh, the city of women and children. So there we were, mom and kids. We came back home to Mogadishu, but we didn't come back to our house. So we spent days and nights staying on the streets, surviving, trying to eat whatever we can to make us, you know, live another day. So, um, and today, uh, things that happen in Syria, things that happen in Yemen, have got the attention of the world. CNN is talking about it, and Al Jazeera, and BBC, and almost everyone is talking about it. Well, what happened in Somalia was never basically documented. I don't remember anybody, you know, talking about it. You know, it's now, if you, go, if you YouTube it, you don't see a lot of uh, basic information, details of what life was like. So that's why I actually chose to put together, with the help of my mom and my dad and my older brother, to put together the memories of what exactly happened to our family. That equals to any other family that lived in, in the city at the time. But what also makes this story interesting is that um, you, you know, we, we, were, we actually basically never had a permanent place to live until a friend tried to take us in. Um, and then we stayed in their house. But then um, we were doing the basic things that you can do in Somalia. Go to the madrasa, obey your parents, bring some water and food or whatever. And we were you know, hustling, uh, my brother and I, um, at the age of seven, nine, eight, and nine. But also, um, this woman opens up a uh, movie theater. And it's not the, the type of movie theater that you can think of. It doesn't have sliding chairs or anything. It's just a little table with a little television screen and a pile of cassettes. And what, you know what those cassettes were? They were all action movies. So we're talking about Van Damme, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Rambos, you know, those, those type of movies. And why? You know, why? I think if, if this was a comedy or some sort of, um, let's say, romantic movie, I wouldn't, I would, no one would have been really interested in doing that or watching this, you know, this type of movies. But I think action movies somehow related to what was happening in Mogadishu at the time. The war, the death, the destruction, all those things you can see in those action movies. So I was inspired by it. We talked about it, we played. When we came outside, you know, we took turns, and I would become the, you know, uh, I would become Sylvester Stallone at some point and punch a guy in the face, and then he would do the same thing to me. And it just, it was some sort of an entertainment. So it distracted us, basically as young kids, from what was happening in the city. So it was an entertainment. Go into the madrasa and go into the movies at some point. The two things probably can't go together, and I document this in my book where my madrasa teacher was, you know, hating me so much at some point, trying to spend my spare time going to the movies, and uh, it, was, it was sort of a struggle. So, 
So I document what, you know, the type of stories that um, we should have, we should have, uh, we, we had to tell basically to the world, you know, living, living in Somalia. But it's entirely about my own story. And then it goes from uh, Abdi who goes to the Madras and the movies together and then goes from there to, uh, to, to, to the Black Hawk Down history that happened and me, you know, when they leave, me saying like they left me behind. And my friends say, what? And I say, I'm American. So the title Call Me American basically comes from there. It's not something that I just invented. Uh, for those, you know, I, I, I still have my childhood friends and they, you know, they understand it. They still call me, you know, American. And uh, my Facebook page has been Abdid American since 2009, I believe, when I created it. Um, and uh, I, I was interested to, to put that, you know, those stories into a book. But there was, uh, uh, Somalia had been through different stages. Uh, for, those, for those of you who know, uh, the Civil War was, I call, the easiest time, you know, when the warlords were there. It was just easy to leave, you know? That's why I had a boom box and played hip hop songs and hang out with a girlfriend and all that stuff. And for those of you who were in Mogadishu in late 90s, that was life. We really had life, seriously. I mean, within the war, within the warlords, but we had life. You know, we could go to the ocean, we, uh, we could hang out with our gangs. You can have a girlfriend, and you could, it was not uh, strange to see uh, a man and woman standing in the darkness under the tree. That was just a normal Somali life. But everything had shifted by 2006 when Somalia had become an Islamic state. Many people don't know that, right? But Somalia was run over. And you know, I document how the struggle actually is, like where I, where I got faced two ways. You either join them, or you get out. Joining was not an option, it was hard. Because once you join them, there's one way out, and that was to die. But to get out, what is the best thing to do to get out? And that's where exactly it comes to, this, to the script, uh, to the excerpt that I just read, um, where I was talking about Yemen. Hundreds and hundreds of Somalis crossed that ocean. Actually, I would say probably thousands crossed that ocean throughout the 90s and into the uh, 2000s uh, when Somalia you know, became, uh, was kind of technically hijacked by people who came in from Afghanistan and Iraq. And then young people who really didn't want to be uh, uh, caught in this kind of decided to move out. And that's where this story, that, uh, that, you know, that um, excerpt comes in, where I decided to venture out from the Mogadishu with $50 in my pocket. And then what did I say? My friend dies, and his boat drones, and his family dies. And another friend survives, and he makes it. So that was what life was like in Somalia at the time. If you really wanted to leave, you either have two ways. You go this way, and you're gone forever, or you go that way, and then you join the rest of the world. I was trying to do the same thing. I wasn't freaked out. But the price, the money to pay to get on a boat to, to the Middle East, to Yemen, was $80. I had $50. And I worked that $50 months and months doing everything that I can, you know, becoming a, a conductor, a, a, a helper at, at a, uh, a minivan, a bus, you know, where I try to get people on board and you know, selling things around and stuff like that. And that's how I accumulated or collected $50. Um, but it wasn't really enough to get me on a boat. 
and I was so devastated. And coming back to Mogadishu was, uh, was going back to hell. I remember that feeling vividly. I really remember that feeling vividly. And why, why was it devastating specifically? It was, it was devastating because actually most of my friends, the good ones, the, the ones that, you know, that wanted to get away from, from the war, get helped by family members in the United States or Europe or Australia or Canada. Uh, financially, you know, they, were, uh, they received $100 or $200 and they were able to get on a boat and survive and go to Yemen and cross from Yemen to Saudi Arabia and then they built a life, married and have wives and you know, some things. Um, I was, I had no other option but uh, to go back to Mogadishu. And once I came back to Mogadishu, I was forced to leave under uh, the, 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 the strict role that was imposed upon us uh, by a group called Al-Shabaab, which was really extremely difficult at the time. Um, and recruitment was, uh, was something that was happening every single day. Um, and you know, some some people, uh, some young you know young young people of my age were had actually no other option, um, but to do that, mostly because you, it's not they're not gonna beg you, they're not gonna ask you for a favor. You know, it's like they force you into that, and you have to do it, or you just lose your life. So what did I do? I kept hiding until I met this journalist who uh, you know, an, uh, Paul Solopek, an American journalist, arrives in Mogadishu. Uh, while the war was happening, and Ethiop uh, uh, the United States sponsored Ethiopian troops, and the Ethiopian troops were fighting Al-Shabaab, and the city was divided into two, and there was a thin line that divided these two guys. You know, they, every night they got into like a really close uh, clashes, and you could hear all these crazy, you know, sh uh, shellings and everything that was happening. Um, so Paul arrives, and he's taking pictures, and he's taking risk uh, with his bodyguards, and I decided to wave and say hi in English. Actually, English I learned from the movies. But that was the first time I started practicing the words that I had learned from, from those movies. Of course, my mom kicked me out of the house by putting a picture of Madonna in the room. Why was I doing that? I don't know. You know, I was childish. I was just crazy. I did so many funny things. I, I swear a lot. Um, I tattooed my room with so many swear words. And uh, I thought that that's what every American does, right? So everyone has something to be, everyone has something to be so obsessed with. So I was, I was like, you know, everyone swears in the movie, so I swear, that's fine. So everywhere I said, I swear a lot. And my mom didn't like that. And, and the time that she figured that, she discovered the, uh, the, the, the portrait of Madonna in a bikini, she said, you're out of your mind and you're going to hell. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, and you know, Paul and I actually talked for a while, a couple hours. He was so, you know, impressed. And he said, you know, I'm going to go back, but you will be stuck here. You're not going anywhere. But he said, your story is going to go out. He promised me that my story is going to be heard by the world. So he comes back and publishes his story, and the story is heard. And, uh, NPR calls me and they are like, you know, do you want to do an audio diary? And I said, give me two days, I'll think about it. And I talked to my mother and I say, you know, mom, this American radio wants me to tell my story and my heart is beating so fast and I have constant butterflies in my stomach. And she says, hell no, don't do it. This is death. I said, um, well, I said, okay, my brother who 
emigrated to Kenya and registered himself as a refugee, uh, sets up his first email, and we email back and forth, and I tell him, brother, this is an opportunity, and I need to tell my story to a radio station in the United States. And I said, what do you think? And guess what he said? Go for it. And that's what I needed. He pushed me. And I said, OK. So two days later, I accepted to actually, um, actually do an audio diary. So why, why was it dangerous? It was extremely dangerous, because this was the time where uh, they were checking our cell phones if we had any music or pictures of people and stuff like that. That could have, you know, it could cause me lose my head or lose an, you know, an arm or something. Um, this was a time when you cannot basically speak English in public because you could have been a spy, right? Uh, this was a time when you you can't dress the way that you want to dress. You can't you know, have your hair in the style that you prefer. So it's extremely difficult. But taking this job to do an audio diary with uh, $500 a month was a lot of money. But it was also dangerous. So I did it. You know, I recorded myself. I uploaded the files. I sent it to the radio. And one woman who heard my radio and lives in Maine uh, decided to reach out to me by email, and her email, the, the title of that email was uh, uh, exquisite, painful, and gorgeous. And then she talked about her family. She talked about winter in Maine. Uh, she talked about what they do Thanksgiving. She talked about her family. She attached some pictures. But then she said, we have this life, but not many people know what you're going through. So how can I help? I said, step number one, I really need to get out of Somalia. I feel like it's really dangerous to live here. Um, and then she puts together a group of, uh, uh, she's a doctor. She's an epidemiologist and teaches at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, she talks to her family, she talks to her friends, and a group of powerful Americans come together to save this one guy, uh, 22 years old, in Somalia. And, uh, while they were trying to raise money, I kept telling my story. And then once I was out of Somalia, came, you know. I mean, Kenya was not accepting Somali refugees uh, to land at the airport. And the border was closed. So it was so hard to get to Kenya at the time. But what we did was I went to Uganda and smuggled myself across the border and ended up in Nairobi to join, uh, reunite with my brother. And we both, you know, lived a decent refugee life. And what a decent refugee life means is, uh, you're not going to get any assistance. You've got to bail yourself out. You, know, you have to have money in your pockets. When the Kenyan police uh, come handcuff you, you've got to bail yourself out. Um, you've got to buy food. you got to get water. you got to pay rent. So, so many things to do. You know, similar things that we do in America, but different there because it was, it was a struggle. Like, if you live in an urban area, it's hard, and a refugee, it's hard to do a business. But then they ask, people, refugees, to move out to the camps. And then there, you, get, uh, you receive uh, rations and, and, and water and stuff like that, and oil. Um, so life in Kenya had been you know, normal. I reconstructed myself, uh, got a new, uh, new t-shirt and new jeans, and that was heaven, and that was great. And I was walking around, being happy, being 
being in the new life um, until um, you know, I, I, I realized like, what's the next chapter? Where do I go from here? You know? That's when I really got to thinking the future because there was no thinking of future in Somalia. It was just like, how can I get out of here? But I was so excited that I had a moment to really think about the future and you know, contemplate and plan and you know, write, start, start doing some writing diaries at the time. Um, and the book's a collection of all those diaries, you know, things that I wrote down, things that, that have been specifically. And uh, for those of you who, uh, who heard This American Life episode, uh, it became one of the most listened podcasts uh, uh, in, in the United States. It was called Abdi and the Golden Ticket. That was a bombshell, I, would, I call it. You know, it's like hundreds of people reached out. They said that was extremely a roller coaster, a wonderful story, because we documented what, what life was like as a refugee, what life was like being a Somali, being a Muslim, being a refugee, and living in a neighboring country that you know, feels like we're not actually welcome. So that was my story, and we told that, and we documented it. Um, and once this American Life story was out, um, well, that's before I came, uh, after I came to the United States, but before that, it was on the British Broadcast Corporation called the BBC, right? Um, so however, I, with the help of these Americans that I met, um, they're trying to get, us, to get me into the United States, and they're trying to do everything for that to happen. So what's the easiest thing that they could do to get me apply for a U.S. college? I did. I got accepted. I was so excited, and I felt like the American dream was getting closer. And then I had to go for the interview, and the officer was so nice, and he said, I think you're wasting your time. Because um, student visa is a non-immigrant visa. That means you're not actually immigrating to the United States. But being a refugee, how on earth is the United States, uh, this officer, how will he trust me that I will come go to college and finish college, three, four years, whatever, to go back to Kenya? I mean, is that even possible? I mean, can you come to this country full of opportunities, go to college, and instead of trying to find a job, who wants to go back to a refugee life? So the officer was being honest with me. He said, you're actually wasting your time, but try something else. I was devastated, but I understood. I came back home. Um, I updated my sponsors. I said, it does not seem like this is a plan that's going to work. I will think. And they waited for me until I found out this program called the Diversity Lottery. The Diversity Lottery Program. It's a, uh, it's a funny program. It's, uh, it's, you can, you know, 15 million people apply every year from everywhere, even people within the United States. Like if you come here with a student visa and if you are from like the United Kingdom, France, Argentina, wherever, you know, you can apply to this program and once that comes out, you can go for your interview and you can stay here permanently. So that's what I tried. Out of 15 million people, I was so lucky to be selected with 122,000 people. So that was the selection part of it. The next process was, you know, doing the knockout thing. You know, they only have 55,000 visas, so everyone else had to go home. So what was the struggle here? The struggle was the documents. What kind of documents did I come with? No birth certificate, um, no high school certificate, 
um, no passport, like nothing basically that America recognizes. If you go to the website of the United States State Department, it says we don't recognize any document from Somalia. So what am I supposed to go with? I mean, you know, it was basically, I kept calling the embassy every single day and I'm like, I'm Somali, I'm refugee, so I won the lottery, what's, you know, are you guys okay with that? Like, is, it, is this possible? They were like, sir, so you have to, you know, go do uh, the health uh, thing and uh, go to the Kenyan police, get your fingerprints done and all that sort of stuff. And they could not basically answer if they are okay with Somalis or no. Well, of course they're smart. Um, well, while I was really going through this, you know, debate in my head, or it's like, is this going to happen or no? Um, same group that I escaped from Somalia bombed Nairobi. They took uh, an entire mall hostage. They killed 70, pe 70, 70 people. And what did the president of Kenya say? I believe it was September 2013. He walks up to the television and he said, refugees are the problem. Let's do two things, send them back home or send them back to the camps. And then there was a massive roundup campaign that the police were doing. They picked you know, every, almost every family in our, in our apartment um, and other families were you know, stuck in the apartment for days and days and days until they gave themselves up and said, I think you guys are you know, starving us to death. And there are pictures and videos on, on social media today that you can find what the Kenyan police actually had done to Somali women. Um, and generally the Somali refugees. It was extremely, you know, um, sad. Um, so however, um, the, the team, uh, the, the friends that I had in the U.S. were trying to do something and they wrote letters and uh, they talked, you know, uh, we, got, we got a letter from Senator Bernie Sanders as well with my name saying like we support this young man, he needs to, he deserves to come to the United States and live here. And the U.S. Embassy had received all of this stuff, and you know, uh, so when I went for my interview, uh, July 22nd, 2014, I was basically neither denied nor accepted. So I wasn't quite sure what he was saying. I was so confused. I was so devastated. He said, "Well, you know, you don't have a signature on this letter, or whatever. So until you bring this, we're not gonna approve your visa." And uh, I was so devastated in the middle of this crisis. Um, and it's been extremely emotionally and physically difficult for me to either get out of the house and do the things that I really wanted to do. And I, you know, looked at the officer in the eyes. I said, I don't know a reason that you are denying me or not giving me the visa. A signature is not a problem. At least tell me you approve me and then I, you know, I, we can do the signature later. Well, he said, welcome to the bureaucracy. Um, so, <clears throat> Anyways, I was able to, with the help of the uh, British guy, the, you know, the, uh, the uh, producer who was working on my story, he called the embassy on Friday, Friday morning. Um, before they went for the weekend, he called them and he said, I'm working with Abdi and uh, he's doing a great you know, documentary with us about his life from Somalia to Kenya. So we're wondering if you guys are gonna issue his visa or no. They said, uh, okay, we'll see. They hung up and two hours later they sent me an email saying, visa is ready to be collected. Can you imagine what I did? I, mean, I was so, like I wish that, you know, I wish that day was every day. I mean the happiest, 
I mean, the happiest man on earth, man. And you know, I, I really, I, I smashed everything. You no, know, when my brother came back, he was like, what happened? You know, I was like, nuclear bomb. You know, I got the visa. Uh, um, and we put together, uh, you know, the, the, my sponsors put together uh, a ticket and uh, I was able to come to Boston, you know, pretty happy. Yeah, you know, when the, you know, I, I uh, the Boston Globe published an entire excerpt from that trip, you know, and uh, I remember writing, you know, while you come to Boston, you know, when you fly from somewhere and come into the United States for the first time, this woman who was sitting next to me, I had a window seat, luckily, uh, and the entire trip was like, what, more than uh, 16, 17 hours, and this woman sitting next to me was just dead sleep. My eyes were glued to the window, just looking the endless ocean underneath. I was like, holy cow. You know, I was just exploring Earth, right? Because I was stuck my entire life in this tiny, you know, Nairobi, Somalia. You know, I, I was never able to like really freely explore the entire world. So why we flew for hours and hours and hours across this ocean? That's when I realized, wow, you know, I'm safe. I made it. I got out. The woman next to me just woke up, you know, just opened her eyes, looking around. She looks at me, I'm, I'm awake, my eyes glued to the window. And she was so bored. <laughs> she was so bored until I said, we're in America, you know, because I saw the Boston buildings, whatever, you know, and I, you know, I shouted and she woke up and she's, is this your first time in the United States? I said, hell yeah, you know. <laughs> right, and, uh, she was really, she, she got a little energy and she started talking about lives. You know, she was like, oh, winter's coming. I hope you will enjoy it, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, you know, and I was like, oh yeah, I can't wait to swim in the winter, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and she, you know, she, she, actually she said thank you when she, you know, got out. She was like, I was bored, but you just made me, made my day, you know, you made me laugh. And, I'm in the airport, you know, in, in Logan, and I'm like looking around, there's breaking news all over the screen, you know, and Michael Brown, the black man, was shot and killed in Missouri uh, the day before. Uh, I, I came in August 11, he, he was killed August 10. So the breaking news was out there. Um, and, uh, and a famous Hollywood actor killed himself on the same day. Uh, can't remember his name. Uh, George uh, Williams? Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Thanks, Abby. Yep, Robin Williams committed suicide. So what am I doing in a country where Robin Williams is killing himself? Right? <laughs> famous, famous Hollywood actor taking his life, and I'm the happiest man on earth to come to a country where he decided to, lead, to completely abandon permanently. So it was, you know, the whole life, my whole life was like so funny if you look at it, you know, in, in, in some ways. And, uh, I met a, there was a Nigerian guy in the line and I asked him, what's up, man? You know, and he just glued to his phone. He tells me he's from Nigeria and I'm like, wow, I've never seen Nigerian. You know, just came from Africa, seriously. Never seen one, you know, just heard of them. Uh, so I was reunited with a group of other immigrants basically in Boston and then once I got out, Sharon, the family that took me to their house and her daughter were waiting to pick me up. Um, jumped in the back seat, we drove up, she looks back and she says, buckle up. What are you talking about? <laughs> we don't put seat belts on in Africa. 
So she said, lesson number one, cops are going to find you, right? And uh, I don't know, if, for those of you who have been to that part of the country, when you drive from Massachusetts all the way up to Maine, what is it like at night? So dark. You don't see anything. You only see the other cars moving around, right? Like you don't see buildings, no skyscrapers, just complete pitch black. And I was like, where are you taking me? Seriously. I, <laughs> you know, even though I, you know, it's, this, these are the people that have been sponsoring me all the way from Somalia to Kenya and then now in the U.S., but I was so freaked out where I was going with these people. And I was also specifically freaked out if they had a dog and how I would deal with the dog and how my life would turn around. You know, this whole, like, you know, I kept thinking about my own family. I mean, trust me, it's really extremely hard to think that you're in the U.S. permanently without your family. I didn't come with my family. I didn't come with my mom, my dad, my brother, just myself. I won a lottery and I brought myself here by telling my stories. And, uh, and then once we were, you know, driving up, uh, I was so excited in the, in the airplane. But then thinking of me sitting in the backseat, like looking through, you know, things, and I'm like, why isn't there life here? I mean, like, what exactly is going on? It's only 8 o'clock. Um, we pulled over to the gas station, and first thing she said was, you're hungry. What, do you need dinner? I was like, yeah. So what do you want? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> so we got some sort of, uh, some kind of uh, uh, sandwich. I can't remember what it was, but it was, it tasted good. Um, so it was, uh, you know, we ended, I ended up in Yarmouth, Maine, a small town in, in Maine, uh, outside of Portland. And the family said, you know, upstairs is yours. You know, their son is in California. He graduated college and is doing his life with his girlfriend, whatever. And they said, that's where he used to live. Now it's yours. Take it. And I have an entire chapter in my book called White Rooms. You know, it's, it's so huge. It's, I can't, like, it, to me, it's like this is more than a room. It's a house. But then the dog comes up to me and wants, <laughs> seriously, and wants, to stay, and wants to stay in bed with me. So, what, we, you know, think about this. You know, we, we have history with dogs and stuff. And that's one of the things I was freaked out. And the dog was uh, <laughs> just not, could not leave because, you know, dogs love new people. <laughs> they do. They do. They're just so excited. And, you, you know, you have, to, you have to do something, you know, to, like, you know, touch their head or something like that. And, <laughs> and uh, or rub their bellies and stuff, and, and uh, you know, I was, I was really freaked out. But they understood, and, you know, they kept pulling the dog from me, and the dog was like, why are you doing this to me? You know, he kept coming to me. And there was already a fight happening here, you know, just the moment had turned into, like, a struggle. <laughs> um, yeah, and in the morning when I opened my door, the dog was waiting again <laughs> to, say, to say good morning, and so, um, I, I, was, I was psychologically really going through some, some struggle. You know, I, would, I would just admit that, you know, it, was, it wasn't really easy. Um, it wasn't easy specifically, like, what, you know, you need to follow the rules of the house, you need to know how to deal with the dishwasher, you need to know how to, uh, you know, cook, uh, use the toaster, oven, you know, all these sort of easy things that you can, I, I seriously didn't, didn't know how to use all of that stuff, so I had to learn from the basics uh, as a grown-up man. And I went out and visited a horse. There's some chickens, you know. So it's like a rural kind of life, you know. Have you, do you guys watch the uh, Walking Dead series? You know, it was, it was like, like that, like less cars, you know, kind of spooky street. Uh, neighbors are, the closest neighbor that we could go to is like two minutes walk. 
So I was freaked out. I was expecting New York, right? I was, I was expecting you know, a place where I wake up and could see cops chasing tags, you know, it's like back and forth and live. And then I ended up walking on this street. Actually, the first thing that they did, uh, the family that took me in, the first, the first thing that they did was, uh, was they took me to, to, the, to the next neighbor. And so this was August 12th, right? This was the uh, Black Lives Matter just emerged. Like it was right there. Everybody was talking about it. So uh, she took me to the neighbors and she said, please don't call 911 on him, right? So wh where was I? I was really confused where I was. I mean, you know, it's like I thought this was the land of uh, Eddie Murphy. You know? <laughs> I, uh, 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 so it was, it was a little scary moment for me. You know, I, and, and Yarmouth is extremely less diverse. You know, it's 6,000 people leaving that town. Uh, there's only one Dunkin' Donuts, no uh, McDonald's or anything. Uh, to go to McDonald's, I, you know, someone had to drive and I didn't have a car. So what can I do? So uh, Dunkin' Donuts just became a permanent place for me to like <laughs> get five bucks and walk all the way up to three miles on that road every day. and. Uh, you know, I could see the cops moving and then coming back. I was like the new guy in town. Then we actually ended up going to the police station, to the town center and everywhere else to notify them that I'm in town so that I don't, I don't get taken away. Um, as a grown-up man, you know, what this feeling looks like, you know? If I was in Minnesota or New York, I'm sure that neighbors wouldn't care. You know, you don't know. There's so many freaking people moving around, so you don't know who's new and who's not. But Yarmouth, everybody knows everybody else. And so I kind of somehow felt that I was pressuring the family at some point. You know, and they were freaked out. They were scared if something happened to me. You know, if, if, uh, if there was a gunshot, for example, and that was leveled against, you know, to me, and, and I would be, you know, gone or something like that. Even though it's, it's a very safe town, but anything can happen. You never know. They don't lock their doors. The doors are open. Um, so my green card arrives in two weeks, but I needed some sort of a job. So we put a, we put a sign at the front yard, and the sign said, a nice young man, no drags, no smoking, <laughs> and I need to do a job, any job, you know. So people drove by, and they read the thing, and they stopped by, and they were like, okay, can you, uh, you know, do our lawn? And I'm like, how do you do a lawn? I don't know, I've never done it. You know, I've never done it. And then the family had to give me a training, put me on this thing, you know, move around. It's like, okay, now I know how to do it. So I actually, yeah, I ended up doing a lot of physical stuff. But then my mom kept calling me every single day. Where's the money? You know? What are you up to? You know, what are you doing? You know, where's the money? And my friends, you know, like, where's the money? And I'm like, this is not actually the country of milk and honey. This struggle is real. <laughs> you know, even though I had support, I was not paying rent. I stayed with this family, you know, for free and as long as I wanted, but they haven't really, you know, there wasn't, um, the struggle was real, you know, psychologically, it wasn't really easy to, to easily adjust. Like, I, I remember sitting around the dining table at night, they eat six o'clock, by the way, which is weird to me, and I'm like, in Somalia, we eat 9.30, 10, something like that, but they eat six o'clock, and I was sitting at the dinner table with them, they, I tell my story, basically what's in my book. They tell their story. You know what they talk about? Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> of course they talk about dogs. 
They talk about their family, they talk about trips, you know, hiking, Thanksgiving, stories of uh, uh, movies and series and, and what is that, Star Wars, you know, all those sort of things. So I find myself sitting there like this, just watching and listening and Thanksgiving was coming up and I was part of the preparatory team, so like what we need to do and the turkey that they eat and I was like, I don't think I will eat turkey. Is there a chicken available, you know, and then I realized to eat turkey is fine, right? I keep, I, I, I eat it now. I hope that's halal. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, four years now uh, since I've, I was in this country, because I came in August 2014, so it's exactly four years and a few days. Um, and uh, I wrote this book, I started writing this book two years from the time I came and this American Life story went out, and people reached out to me and they said, we need more details of this, you know, you need to talk about your childhood and what you have been through and all those sort of stuff, and I hope that's gonna be a good book. Uh, so I started putting together uh, this book, memoir, and basically called my mom almost every day to uh, verify things in our childhood and stuff, and she was, she's a storyteller, pretty good storyteller actually. And somehow I have that part in me, right? Tell stories. And it was out on June 19th, World Refugee Day, June 20th, of course. With that, we've reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Abdi Norifton and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about the well-being of Ifton's family back in Somalia. So my, my mother lives in, in Mogadishu, same street. Um, so, I mean, I really hate receiving a phone call from her because it, it's mostly something, so something happens. I mean, it's, it's still a war zone, you know, it's, it's there, of course there's a government, uh, but anyone can get killed. Uh, anything can happen and explosions are becoming uh, like routine uh, in the area. So she, well, she's okay, but she's actually, I would say she's not safe. I mean, you know, my sisters and, and my mom are both living together. Uh, but what do we do? I follow the Somali news constantly every single day and the main reason is because of my family and of course my neighbors and my friends um, and things happen. You know, there was like an explosion a couple days ago and it killed just people. People that are like us, people like my mom, um, you know, someone's mom, someone's dad, someone's brother, someone's cousin was killed. So it's, it just gives me a thrill, you know, a feeling where like, you know, I, I, I get scared for them as well because uh, I, I tell them not to go anywhere, but that's not possible. They have to go some, get some food. Um, so yeah, they're leaving the danger. This audience member asked how Ifton was able to publish his book with a major publisher as a first-time author. Basically, before I got Random, before I got Random House, I, I had an agent, and she was really extremely nice agent. Um, and. Uh, She's based in New York, and she knows all these age, uh, publishers. Uh, but we, I basically uh, submitted uh, my proposal. You know, they, uh, 
what this story, this story was about, you know, basically trying to, you know, describe uh, the detail of my story uh, uh, from the Jailu to teenage days, growing up in Somalia as a grown-up man and coming to Kenya as a refugee and, you know, the description of those. Uh, so my agent found this story interesting, extremely interesting. And she took it to a group of publishers, including Random House or Knopp. And we picked Knopp for, you know, because she's really, you know, knows how to handle with them and she's been dealing with them a lot in many books. So uh, I was part of the decision making, but it was her support and her recommendation is that I decided to go, to go forward and choose Random House. This question is about how Ifton's book has been received by Somali Americans. The book has, has you know, there, a chapter of the book has become a controversy within the Somali community, um, mostly in Maine, uh, I would say, and then it kind of exploded into, um, into like a, wherever Somalis are. Um, and the, the whole argument begins from basically my, one of my roommates, who I actually describe him in the book as a successful man who runs a business. Uh, but he decided to come forward. Um, well, before I say that, let me say, when I was working on my book, I lived in an apartment with a group of Somalis. Um, so I kind of lived, my address and everything else was in Yarmouth. But with the emotional struggle and the cultural changes and everything else that was happening, I decided to also have some live with other Somalis so that we could eat together and talk together and do things together. However, I documented my experience of what was happening in the apartment. It was an interesting story where a group of us, men living in one, in one, you know, one apartment, we all you know, had mattresses thrown all over the place. Um, but then I was, I was so interested in just trying to work on you know, how some of us were so attached to the culture, so leaving, like, I mean, basically it comes from because when you are in Somalia or in Kenya, you feel like every Somali who lives in the United States is living like everybody else, right? That was my feeling. And then I decided to write some of my roommates who actually weren't able to speak good English, were walking at, you know, um, Walmart or driving taxis, and, and then one man owns his own business. So I feel that was an interesting story to work, to work on. And then one of the roommates decided to, uh, to come forward and say that this is a lie and this is a fabricated story. And he's saying those because he and I have personal issues. Sad to say this. Uh, a year ago, we had a soccer, we played some soccer and we had some arguments. Um, and our arguments somehow go back, well, I'm not really, you know, I say things, I do things my way, right? Um, those one day I, you know, was, uh, was trying to wrap some gifts for friends on Christmas, which actually has nothing to do with religion. It doesn't mean you're out of, Islam, you, you know, you're, you're not, you're doing some things that are out of the Islamic teachings. So it was just basically giving some gifts to friends because the friends were giving me some gifts. So it was to me to exchange stuff. He wasn't happy with that. And he, you know, said, uh, if you want to do those sort of stuff, so get out of the apartment. And I was okay with that. I drove up to the other house and I, that's what I did. So that kind of argument kind of goes back in there. It was like, you know, he somehow was trying to dictate the way I lived my life. I'm sorry to say this, but that's, you know, it's important to tell the truth. 
Um, so, um, so when the book comes out, he and I weren't really talking for a while, and then he decided to actually go on social media and campaign a hate and uh, and uh, and uh, you know, especially among the Somali communities. And unfortunately, many Somalis who haven't read the book haven't really read the book. Were easily, you know, somehow I don't know what happened specifically. I don't know why they haven't reached out to me, but they were out on Facebook either live, Facebook Live, or uh, posting some comments on Facebook and saying that this book is full of lies. How do you know if you're in Seattle that this book is really you know, full of lies? It's extremely heartening. But the way I see it is that um, the book's taken as a threat by, uh, I'm trying to prove that, the book's taken, you know, that chapter is taken as a threat by the, by the community in, in Maine, mostly because it says, uh, there's, there's a place where I say Somali community is run by sheikhs, you know, imams. Um, or another place where I say Somalis, uh, my roommates, some of my roommates weren't actually assimilating. But that's how I see things. That's my observation. That's how I, you know, I wish I could have used integration other than assimilation. Those are things that I personally had seen. I don't have to write anything that's fabricated or a lie. But if the community actually disputes or they think that this is portraying, you know, this chapter is portraying, or that part of the book is portraying the community in the wrong way, it would be much easier without going on social, uh, Facebook, Facebook and Twitter calling me a non-Muslim, calling me a Quaker. Actually, one of my roommates calls me a Quaker. Uh, Quaker is, uh, is another faith, and someone I've been describing it earlier, but I don't really know what they do. And the reason he calls me a Quaker was the friends that I give the gifts, Christmas gifts, were Quaker. But I'm not a Quaker. So he's spreading in, uh, some sort of falsification that I hate Somalis, that I hate Muslims, that um, I hate Somali culture, that I, I support Trump. <laughs> Whereas the book is completely the counter narrative of all the things that's on social media today. This book promotes the immigrant stories. We need to tell our stories. And once, you know, for those people who read this book, now they understand how important it is, you know, for those of us who immigrated to this country to tell our, our stories the way we really, you know, tell our stories. I haven't insulted anybody. I haven't defamed anyone. Nobody else has come forward and said they have disputes on this book. Uh, my roommate has personal issues with me, and this is uh, his sort of a game to uh, campaign, um, campaign uh, hate or, you know, this sort of stuff. And trust me, one thing that Somalis hate is if you convert from Islam to somewhere else. So he understands that. That's why he's calling me a Quaker. That's why he's calling me someone who hates a Muslim. So that has actually outraged so many Somalis on social media. Now they're so confused, you know, they're like, why is he doing this? Why is he, why is he really disparaging our culture, our religion? And they call me the second Ayan Hersi, and, and Ayan Hersi is another Somali woman who publicly decided to convert. I was in this country for four years, and I'm 33 years old. Come on, you know, I'm not a child. You, know, so you, can't, you can't say those things to a grown-up man. So it's, it's really sad. Um, I've been quiet, I haven't really, been involved in any war or anything at all. I, I see all this as madness, as something that's, that I can't still digest, I can't still understand. This audience member asks what the hardest part was about writing this book. 
I mean, the hardest part of the book was uh, calling my mother on the stories. You know, it was extremely emotional. I remember her crying over the phone and me hanging up and saying, Mom, I'm sorry to ask you those questions. And, and uh, you know, and they were specifically, you know, just asking her how she really managed to do that. Just how, how did she manage to keep us safe and while we slept under the bridge, you know, in our freshly buried, you know, uh, bodies? Um, and what was it like for her? Because we were kids, we could fall asleep and, you know, that's our world and we would wake up and we depended 100% on her for finding food and everything else. So that was the type of questions I asked and her saying, I expected that you would die any minute. So imagine that was me. So that was the most really difficult part of writing the story. Our next question is what the process looked like for writing this book. Um, so, like I said, uh, there are, you know, most of the book are actually audio diaries that I did myself, which are all stored and are easily available, and written diaries that, I, you know, things that I wrote, and I still do it. Every day I just write diaries when things happen. I take, you know, write the date, uh, write the time, and I put all of those together, and then, you know, the details and everything comes when I really see and go back to that specific moment. Um, and it was, the transition was hard, you know, like when I was in Somalia, the things that I wrote about were, were no, nothing peaceful about it, just except when I described the weather. You know, I, uh, I emailed Paul, the American journalist that I met, and I, e I emailed him almost every day describing Mogadishu's weather, which is like, it's sunny and beautiful. But guess what, it's sunny and beautiful every day. Because <laughs> it's, it's over 100 all the time. It's like, wait, how do you, how, you know, how, you're not in Maine. It's cloudy, it's snowy. No, you don't say that. So if you, if you ever, that's, what, that's one of the things when I asked my mother when was I born, she keeps saying it was hot, you know? And I'm like, okay, every day is hot, but what was it? Like, when was it? So, yeah. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what is the most difficult part about living in America? I would say there are a few things that are hard living in the United States, but most importantly, as a, you know, as a grown-up man, you know, someone who came to this country at the age of 27, um, I, one thing I found that was really hard is just identifying yourself, you know, am I Somali? Am I African-American? Am I African? Well, am I American? So I feel that was really an interesting thing, but like, how do you identify yourself? Like when you go form, fill up some forms. I remember when I came to Boston, I, I, I did uh, Caucasian. Uh, <laughs> seriously, even though I can't read, but I feel like I was not African-American, I was not Latino, but this must be Somali, right? So, so that's what I did. So I think just identification is some issue. That wraps up our Augsburg University event with Abdi Norifton. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Piggy Orenstein at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Award-winning journalist and feminist icon Piggy Orenstein is a leading voice in the national conversations around gender norms and expectations. Her latest project is a wide-ranging anthology, Don't Call Me Princess, essays on girls, women, sex, and life. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. 
And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>